0: I, um, I do you realize
1: to, all of our cold opens are you screwing up the intro do you realize that i because I, I screwed up so
0: much exactly hi. <laughs> hi welcome to outrageous okay got it all right it's just it, it's the warm-up Welcome to Our Race, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in L.A. Hello. And Jason in D.C. Hello. Happy coronavirus, everyone. too happy. <laughs> is it too soon? Trisha did not think that was funny.
1: <laughs> there are a lot of people dying. My mic oh. wasn't working.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jason. There are a lot of people dying. It's
1: like like Herb Enthusiasm. That's the good Hodgkins, right? It's not the bad Hodgkins, it's the good Hodgkins.
0: It's so bad. Uh, Um, um, One time, I remember Tricia accusing me of wanting to live in interesting times, and I told her, absolutely not. And yet, somehow, here we are in 2020, in the most interesting year, I think, of my life. How are you two
2: doing? I'm definitely not feeling my optimal best this week. I was fully engaged in work, and then I had a series of meetings, and then Friday came and I kind of emotionally crashed, and I spent the weekend sort of sleeping, and I think I'm just kind of still dealing emotionally,
0: with Emotionally, what was the emotional hit?
2: You know, for me, the biggest problem here is, like, I don't trust our federal response.
1: What? Why not? What are you talking I mean, about? No, it's, what? like,
2: shocking. It's shocking. Well, this it's is very
1: we have five tests out there now. They got a couple of tests know. out there. We tested it, a couple it, people. It,
2: it. So we really, while I'm heartened by my like governor's response and I'm in California, I just think to myself, this is going to be so much more complicated than it needed to be.
0: Everything. Everything la- in the last two years.
2: Everything, Four you know, years. and it's just like yeah. the lack of like concerted uniform effort by our leadership at the highest level just makes me crazy and so I think I was so zoned in and focused on what I could control last week and then I kind of panned out and it was just depressing. (laughs)
0: Jason, Trisha's depressed. You?
1: I think I'm depressed after hearing that. Um, I know I
0: think I am too. (laughs) Yeah it's contagious. I threw it it to you because the beginning of the show and we need to pick it up so how you doing Jason?
1: (laughs) No I, I uh no, you know, generally, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. There are, uh, we can get into this later, there are aspects of how I'm living now that I actually enjoy, and it's like, wow, I maybe could do more of this generally, even after this crisis. I do just want to say, though, it, and it's easy for me to say both where we are in time as well as not being a federal official in charge of the response, but you it, it just you look at it and you say, you know, the the logical not easy, but simple response should be you test everyone, you figure out who has it, and then you, you know, do whatever's needed for the social distancing. And we're this far into it, and we still aren't doing that. We still don't have the test capacity or distribution to do that. We still are pretending that unless you have symptoms, you don't have it, so don't worry. It's, uh, it's just amazing. But anyway, to go back to the positive, I'm feeling pretty good.
0: I think it's too late. You know what? Here we are. I think we <laughs> should just roll with this. You two. I took
2: down a road, sorry. Okay, but,
0: I'm know, gonna I'm-, I'm gonna cut this part out. But you know what? You two, when we start the show, you gotta really hit it with like, people are listening and they want to like feel good. This is an entertainment podcast, and you two are just like pass the Romeo and Juliet poison or whatever. Is
2: it? Can I really really just? I think po- podcast, or is it about how we're honestly dealing?
1: What? It's entertainment. <laughs> I just want the listeners to know that when, first of all, Chris was extremely late to the call after Trisha and I harassed him. And then and then the first words out of his mouth when he appeared, I hate everything. I just want the listeners to know that okay, it's your first fault. First of all, that your out.
0: direct appeal to the listeners, I feel, is offensive. <laughs> uh, second of all, the entire world has had to communicate in this way, the way that we're communicating. You know, as you all know, since we're in three different cities, listeners, like we do this on Skype every week, right? Or Skype or something like that, right? Having to do every meeting and every call using video, this this stuff is so shoddy and it's terrible. And troubleshooting this show has given me patience, but not much for it. So that's when I said, (laughs) I hate everything. I just mean like setting this up, like the mic and stuff, it's just, it, why does it take five minutes? We do this every freaking week. So that's the everything that I hate. So there you go. So you two are depressed. And,
1: I'm and I just pulled you off your high horse and you got really negative too. I just, so we're all, all right. together oh. in misery. We're
0: just all just in the muck of it all.
2: <laughs> but we're together in the muck. That's actually one of the things that I think is somewhat kind of amazing about this moment is like listen at the end of the day which is shocking but at the end of the day it doesn't even matter how rich or poor you are you are all we're all trapped under the monster of our lack of federal response like a rich person can't (laughs) outrun it they can't like buy out of it like it all slows everyone down and so i feel like in this moment it really makes the case for what government can and can't do. Like, I think rich people thought that they could sort of buy themselves out of like governmental negligence. or. But look at this thing. Look at this. They can't do what they do. They can't go on cruises. So in
1: the end, Trump is a socialist because he has made us all equally miserable. That's an interesting (laughs) perspective.
0: I kind of want to talk about this. We need to have a discussion about what government is for because it's in moments like this Everyone's looking around to shout to someone, save us, save us. So we're like trying uh, rich people, we're trying corporations, and everyone's just shrugging. And I'm like, you know who, whose job this is? The government. Remember the one that you you key partiers tried to slow down a couple of years ago? You know, like he everything to stop big government and like stop sending politicians to Washington. Where, like, remember all that? Yeah, that's who we should be appealing to. I mean, at the end of the day, Microsoft and Ford and Elon Musk care about the masses as much as they care about that we need to be alive to buy their products. That's literally why they have corporations, an organization that cares about the general wheel, W-E-A-L, by the way, that is the government. And the time is right to have that conversation. What
1: do you two think about that? Well, my knee-jerk reaction, and I'm looking this up to see who it is. So I don't know if you two listened to the political gab fest last week, but they had a guest on, and I can't remember who it is, but he it said, was a professor from Yale. Yeah. D- David David Blight, Civil War was historian. So fucking smart. It was so good. And what he said is he said the two moments in American history when the United States, when Americans completely changed what they expected out of government. One was during the Civil War, and the next time was during the Great Depression, when there were fundamental shifts in what government was expected to do. And he was saying that this could be a time when th- a time like that as well. When you look at, as we've kind of alluded to a little bit at times, you have like right wing Republicans saying we need the federal government to, you know, step up and do this and that. We're, we're, they, the Republicans just sent checks, you know, or started the process to send checks to Americans, um, you know, all over the country. This could be one of those moments. The other thing that gives me a slight bit of of optimism or hope from that those say, that same interview is David Blight said also out of those two moments, civil war and great depression uh, new political parties emerged, the Republican Party out of the Civil War, the Democratic Party, the modern Democratic Party out of uh, the great depression and maybe maybe we 're in a moment where polarization will lessen and we will have a a new party or party structure emerge that is. Uh, more unifying than we have right now. Trisha, what's the conversation that we should be having about government in this crisis?
2: It's actually sort of like a forthright conversation about what are the systemic failures in this moment and asking ourselves, how did we get here? What were the expectations that um, led us here? What, I mean, in a weird way, we can't even confront them because the current you know, the current government doesn't want to have that serious conversation. And there isn't any kind of culpability being built into sort of the media narrative around it, because there's still a kind of both sidedism conversation. Like Trump says that he thinks that we have enough tests was a New York Times headline. Governors disagree. That's like, they make <laughs> it seem like, you know what I mean? Like, there's been a lot of pushback on that headline. And the question is, like, why are you framing that headline in such a way? There's a reality, which is, or at least a reality according to teams of experts, which is the best way to deal with COVID-19 is to test as many people as possible and do all the sort of things that Jason identified. It made it seem as if that option was up for grabs, right? Yeah, it was up for discussion. It was up for discussion. It's like, should we, you know, I think we've had this conversation on the podcast. If you ask any kind of question, there will necessarily be another side of that question. Right, You can find one person. So I think in a certain way, I'm kind of like looking for like a proposition. Like I want people to offer an idea of what government is, what's possible for government to, to, to manage. Um, And this is a perfect example of that, you know, not like haranguing us, like some of the political party folks are doing right now, which is like, you should have, you could have, but really saying, you know what, as you look at the failures of this moment and let's list them, here is where a body such as the federal government can insert itself in this process because the governors are trying as best as they possibly can. But what do we know from the governors? They're competing for ventilators and they're like, the federal government needs to enter this conversation and set a price for ventilators so that we don't have to compete or so it's not left to the market. I mean, think about that. Think about uh, in our society for someone to say, can we not have the market decide this, please? I mean, thereby recognizing that there are some things or in some moments where the market should not enter the conversation. Now we can have lots of, we can have oh, lots of dialogue about what those things are. Education is one of my favorites. But let me, but, let
0: me ask you to abstract oh, a little bit away from ventilators given this crisis, right? What's the answer to the question? What is government for? Like how would you sum that up? Cause I think a lot of people are confused.
2: I mean, for me, you know, I've always thought of it in a very, very simple way. I mean, maybe I'm not really complicated in my thinking about it, but I really think that government is the only body that executes the social contract we have with each other. It is the only weighty body that can compete with business and all the other sort of um, more money. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) religion. Yeah. All of the other sort of mass ideas or mass groupings that really kind of move Move ideas, and so so for me, it's like you're competing with the business class. You're competing with um, the civil sector, or well, all of those things. But really, to me, the weighty the weighty part of that equation has always been government. It is the one that is supposed to focus on the common good, and the common good as informed by what is the best for all citizens, and if not all, but at least most, right? And mm. I feel as if there's been a sort of dereliction of duty of that. And, but also probably just because it's been obscured and it's just gotten confused. And people thought, I think, that others could fill that hole. But when you are in the midst of a crisis, you kind of realize the philanthropic sector can only do so much. The private sector can only do so much. And really they only want
0: to do so much. Like they only have, the access they have to resources is finite, you know. Uh, compared to the government, and relatively compared to the government, which has all sorts of powers, war powers, to extract, to take land, to compel people to produce things that otherwise they might not produce because they have the facilities, etc. Jason, at the end of this crisis, how does the American government get stronger from here?
1: Are you asking me to make a prediction or are you asking me to say what I, what I think should happen?
0: Uh, are those uh,
1: different? Very. What should happen is we should have a national health service. I don't think that will happen.
0: Uh, Why not? I mean, I feel like the political capital for this is stacking up as quickly as the bodies are. You really don't think that we're going to move in that direction? That's interesting.
1: I, I don't. I hope I'm wrong, but I think... I think that once the economy can get moving again those who benefit a lot from the economy as it's currently structured will work hard to dismantle any structures that have been put into place to protect people right now.
2: Well nothing is being put into place the tricky thing for me here is maybe it's like the parameters that we've always offered up like it's always like Medicare for all or that like what if there what if you focus on the end but not the means of getting there so that we can actually begin to have a dialogue about it.
1: You know, it's a good point. Although with this crisis has, it's moved the parameters for me. Whereas the way you just said that, what I would have said two weeks ago and every time prior is that the question is, how do you make sure all Americans have access to quality healthcare? That's still very important, but I actually think, and it gets to things you were just talking about, Tricia, I actually realized there's a, Another component of that, which is how do we have a national approach to ensuring that we have safeguards in place to protect American lives? So it's not just like everybody can go to the doctors, not just that everybody has access to preventive medicine. It's that, uh, and I'm riffing a little bit off an interview I heard today on NPR with, uh, I think, uh, the editor of The Economist. It's um, making sure we have stockpiles of ventilators. Ready. The way we have stockpiles of nuclear weapons, way more than anyone would ever need, and we pay tons of money to maintain them, but we don't stockpile things like ventilators and hospital beds. Like to me, that's a shocking realization in this moment. Never really thought about it before. Um, so, so there, I still believe like, yes, let's make sure everyone has access to healthcare, but there's another component of, and I do think it's government's job, just like it is with the military to say, we've got to have, I'm going to use this term loosely money in the bank, right? Like we have to have reserves ready to save American lives in the face of an unexpected pandemic or the like,
0: you know, I asked the question about government we quickly started talking about healthcare for all. But when I look at this moment, I don't think that access to healthcare is what got us into this moment here. Like that wasn't the government's failing. As Trisha alluded to earlier, there's been a real federal versus state contest happening for no reason whatsoever. And I'm thinking like in the future that has to be reconciled in a way. The federal government is able to dangle aid and and, and I understand that Trump is his own animal and we've talked about that ad nauseum, that the way that the federal government is acting in antagonism to the states just feels—I mean—mutinous. Really, it just feels like the, none of this thing is this whole thing isn't working. Healthcare needs to be corrected in this country. Yes, as we have to correct education and law enforcement and the rest of that. But I think the true failure that happened here was one: information gathering and dissemination. First of all, I mean, the information was coming out of Italy and China and Iran about what was happening. And for some reason it just didn't, the government wasn't able to make it happen. And I know they, they years ago, George Bush read a book about pandemics or something like that. Yeah. And I come not remember this. the name of the book that he read, but he, his administration came up with a manual for how to behave in the pandemic, passed it on to the Obama administration, which passed on to the Trump administration. And there was an abject failure here so there was a failure in the executive branch. We can talk about how much Trump is a terrible president and let's hope we don't have anyone this bad again in my lifetime or in, in near modern history. But like there's been a failure of the executive branch and I think that is that has to be looked at and corrected somehow. I'm not exactly sure how. I feel like that there has to be a reckoning when this is over.
2: Well, are you saying that there's a failure in the executive branch outside of who's leading it? Because I think the thing that you would have, is because Obama did deal with, not a pandemic quite, but he did deal with quite a few health, public health crises with a pandemic team. So it's not as if there wasn't sort of
0: The guidance is scandal. there.
2: There was, was a handbook.
0: There was guidance and Obama and the, I don't know exactly what you're referring to, but it wasn't, first of all, it wasn't on the scale. But what I'm saying is like, to answer your question-
2: H1 and then Ebola. I mean, there there have been, not on this scale. The thing I'm trying to point out, though, is I just want to make sure that this is related to your question about what is the um, point of government. We've talked about the fact that within the last three years, we have appointed people to lead government offices that are about eliminating those offices, right, or making them as small as possible. And so we see that in I R, we see that in education, and now we've we're seeing the 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 sort of downside of it, at the very highest level. So Mm. maybe you're right in the sense that it is an opportunity to like revisit things that we had taken for granted and say, oh, by the way, we did need that. Let's put that back in there. You know, we probably need a budget line for that. You know what I mean? Like when you think about streamlining your own personal budget and you got rid of food and you realize, like three days in your own apartment, you're like, I didn't put a budget for food. I should probably add that back in there and eliminate, you know? So I think that's part of the conversation too. I
0: guess what I'm talking about is a check within the system. Like sure. the, the judicial branch has a check, in fact, they have to reach majority. Similarly in Congress, it's similar. There's yeah. nothing like that in executive branch except for perhaps the 25th Amendment where the vice president can decide that the president can no longer serve. That's, I, that's the only check I can think of. If anyone out there knows of something that I'm missing, and I'm just wondering, do we need more intra-branch checks to, pre- to prevent something like this from happening again? Because Trump would literally kill us all. But you know, but
1: isn't, I mean, we've talked about this issue, but isn't the answer... Like Congress at any moment can pass a law that overrides the president. The president is responsible for for enforcing the laws that Congress passes. So it should be Congress that can take hold of the steering wheel at moments like this and compel the president to do things. We just don't have a Congress that's willing to do that. Yeah,
2: That's really it.
1: Not to pivot too far from this, but one thing I've been thinking a lot about is prior to this crisis, I have often felt like we just will not ever have the political will to deal with climate change until most of us are dead. And that may still be the case. However, just from a standpoint of, are we capable of drastic behavior change to address something like climate change? I actually think we, I feel like this is teaching us that we are capable of it. There's still the question of whether we're willing to do it. It's like, because this has the potential to kill us within weeks, as opposed to decades we are all willing to like drastically change our behavior. I'm not saying it's the exact same behavior changes. It would take different behavior changes. And, and Trish, you've made good points on our podcast here about how it's not just about individual actions. It's about certain corporations changing what they do. But look, the president was willing to you know invoke this law to force car manufacturers to make ventilators for this crisis and so it just says to me, like, if we had the will, we actually could compel both individuals and corporations and institutions to do what's needed to be done to, I mean, it's not like we can eliminate climate change tomorrow, but to make drastic improvements. Again, I don't know that we will be willing to do that, but I actually think we, we could do a lot more than I thought we could.
0: Let's pivot to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Tricia, you had sent around an article about a journey. AOC is on. Can you talk a
2: little bit about it? It was a political piece asking the question if ocasio cortez is shifting from being in Congress for enough time to learn that there may be different ways or better ways to get at her end goal than to necessarily follow the path that was established by um, Bernie Sanders, who many think that she's kind of the natural heir to. Um, there's a sense that she's kind of breaking from what Bernie has done and how Bernie has approached or strategized his way through um, Congress. And so the, I think the, the, the piece was suggesting that having been there for about, what, two years now, I guess, is how long she's been there? Yes. That she has, um, she's learning that she's going to need more moderate Democrats to get things done. And so she is altering or shifting her strategy. And I guess the question is, is she selling out or is there another way for us to look at this?
0: What else was she gonna do? She's growing up. She came in, she's like, I'm gonna burn it all down. It was just the liberal version of like the, the Tea Party and the hell no, the hell no-ness that the Republicans were doing during the Obama years, right? If you go to government, you've got to get stuff done. And wanting to dismantle or, or retard the government to the point where it doesn't do anything or overthrowing the whole thing, it's not something that's going to happen when you're elected to go there. You know? And so she got there and she was like, oh, it's fun being famous and it's fun being super liberal and having these progressive ideas, but they're not going to happen overnight because nothing happens overnight. It's going to be an entire movement. And the movement starts with building coalitions, doing everything that politicians are supposed to do. And, you know, you know, this is my problem with the Bernie bros is that I understand that you don't trust the government. You know, I'm a minority a couple of times over and I understand what that means and how it feels. But if we're gonna make actual changes, we have two choices. One, we can figure out how to use the government to make the changes or two, we have an actual revolution, not a Bernie Sanders branded revolution, right? That word gets thrown around a lot. You know what a revolution looks like? It looks like Russia, right? It looks like France when they had the right revolution. It looks like the Chinese when they had their revolution. Like it's bloody, it's a mess, and everything is different afterwards. If we throw that word around far too much, if that's the way we're going to go, give me a pitchfork and a torch, I'm ready to go. I've been ready to do it, right? But I'm also ready to do it the other way. And I think she just realized that as well. She doesn't want to be the pitchfork
1: torch type. I don't disagree with you, but I think it's interesting to look at. So you take the tea party, the tea party, which I fundamentally disagree with in many ways. And is, I think it's extremely Wait, problematic, <laughs> I just thought
0: it was a weird thing to I, state, but
1: anyway, <laughs> I think it's extremely well, cause I'm about to say something that may sound like I'm praising it. I, I think it's extremely problematic, but it really did change. I mean, they flipped flipped is maybe the wrong verb, They primaried a lot of people and got them out of office. Um, And and the Republican Party did move to the right as opposed to as a a result of the Tea Party. I would also say like Trump um, through, you know, his campaign and his tactics, he has moved the part the Republican Party off of certain long held positions. So I I I think Ocasio Cortez. I think I'm guessing where we probably all agree is that she's being very savvy. Uh, but I think that what's what's just interesting about all this. I think if you look at how Sanders did as as poorly as he did in the primary or has done thus far, the the reality is, although he loves to talk about building a movement, he has not attracted enough support. And and I don't this is not a critique of her because she's young and she's accomplished amazing things in her short uh, career so far. But neither has she, you know, she she helped to get a couple of people elected. But the reality is neither Sanders nor Ocasio-Cortez have been able to attract enough support, enough powerful support to move the Democratic Party as as strongly as the Tea Party or Trump, for instance, move the Republican Party. And so I think the question for her, I think it totally makes sense that she's not going to primary people that she's unlikely to beat because it's only going to hurt her ability to get things done. I think, Chris, you and I agree on that. The big question for her and other people who share her policy views is what now? how do you build a movement because what's happened thus far is not quite enough. And so, and I don't know the answer. I don't know if someone has to write a really popular manifesto. Like, I don't know what it is, but they've got to find some way forward because a lot of people had their bets on Sanders and Sanders deserves credit. He's, he has accomplished things, but they're just, they have not built enough power to change the democratic party to the extent those other forces change the Republican party.
2: Well, can we talk about why those forces were able to change the Republican party? Which is that in terms of the democratic base and who votes, they're struggling with structural issues, right? In terms of voter suppression and all of those elements. So it seems to me that it's a little bit easier to move that group to the right when you have a when you have a base white that is not going to struggle with those institutional issues.
1: I hear what you're saying. I'm not sure though. You could be right, but I will. I'll just pose a couple of potential countering ideas. One is that we know a lot of this oppression is on African-American voters and, frankly, a lot of older African-American voters as well as incarcerated folks. I'm not sure we see a lot of evidence that those folks are in large numbers are likely to be Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez Democrats as opposed to Pelosi, Biden Democrats. So that's that's one thing I would I would kind of submit for for consideration to that. The other thing is, you know, it's commonly seen, I'm going to trust the polls for a second, that it's mostly younger voters, including a lot of younger white voters who support Sanders and uh, Ocasio-Cortez, and those are not the folks who are being suppressed. So that might be a factor, but I'm not sure it's the largest factor.
2: Well, I mean, part part of it is that you're talking about people who have never proven themselves, which are young voters. So I think the question is who are the people that vote? And so if you are talking about the left and you're talking about older African-American vote, then if you're going to move that party, you're going to have to move those people. So you're not moving that. But if you're talking about the right, older white people, they do vote. And so it's easy to see a natural um, um, result from your action whichever one you're doing right so it's like if you're the tea party and you pushed on a sort of racist element and older white people voted you got what you you got what you wanted but if you are on the left and you're pushing for the people who religiously vote which are older african americans then you've got to talk about their issues in a way that resonates and that's not something that bernie was able to do he never figured out a way to build the alliances with that voting block it just didn't happen his alliance was with a kind of hope for block right a youth block that didn't quite show up but also New there voters. was a lot of yeah young, un- unknown voters I mean the other thing is the research just shows that young people just don't vote you can right. get them to vote a lot and you can we've seen some increases we saw them during the midterm but the reality is that people really don't sort of settle into voting until they're They are sort of, I hate to say it, marriage, child-rearing age. That's when it sort of hits them that this is something real and that they can, that's, that's kind of what the research has established.
0: So would you say Sanders' miscalculation is to mistake youth enthusiasm for youth votes?
2: yeah i mean i think so i think i I don't want to i don't want to scrap it entirely because there was an uptick in youth vote but the idea also is availability of voting and when you're voting and how you're voting that's also i don't want to call it blatant suppression but it didn't really work for for you the youth either like people weren't able to stay in long lines if you were someone who's in a college environment or any of those kinds of things that's definitely the case too
1: well, I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say you started to touch on something that I think is it, is an element that's very powerful, and I don't know the answer, but you know, folks like the the Tea Party, although there was some division on this issue, but also Trump, they also were able to touch on issues that bring a lot of people together, and unfortunately, in the worst ways. One being race and identity politics, which is harder to sell to the left coalition because people have all different identities. Whereas if you're just selling like we got to protect white identity, you automatically unite a very large portion of, of the public. Another thing is is abortion, and I think the reality is you have a lot of people on the right if they, they can disagree with everything else about a platform, but if you're pro life, they will. I mean, there are lots of people who will say that like I'm a Christian and that's the number one thing, and I don't even care anything else they talk about. And even though I think the left largely is is pro choice, there are people on the left who are not pro choice but stick with the left for other reasons. I think especially people of color who may be very religious and that kind of thing. And The ideas on the right that prove to be cohesive, we don't seem to have equivalence to that on the left. Now, in some ways, maybe that makes us better people, not having things like racism to unite us. But then it's hard to unite people on the left because you don't have those those sticky issues.
2: But it's a little bit about what Chris is talking about or we were just talking about, which is, I do think that there are some compelling issues on the left. It's just that we've often been really solution oriented and people disagree with the solutions. Do you know, like everyone understands that, like we talk about healthcare, we talk about social safety net. I think you can get a lot of people. And I think you might even be able to galvanize some folks on the right about what are social safety nets that should be in place. It's the how, and the why and the mechanism that gets people frothed up, right? Like, if even the last election, you look at the left, and for the most part, they were kind of in agreement about things. But yet, the disagreements were sort of offered up as completely diametrically opposed. You know what I mean? Like, a Sanders person is completely different from a Warren person, when basically they're like, we need to get as many people under some sort of protection for their health as best as possible. How, I think, you know what I mean? But it was painted- I think you've in- gone
0: too far around though, Trisha. I don't even think it's that complicated. I think, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but I think that's, you, that's really the extra lap. At the end of the day, like what Jason's saying, the reason why the right is able to um, unite around certain ideas, because ideas are old and tested and true, and they're, they're resting on the same foundation as all the ideas on the left. So when the left comes together and says, we need equal rights for women, right? As we saw at the Women's March a couple of years ago, the question immediately became, well, which women, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a question the right never answers because they've accepted certain amounts of racism and sexism and classism into their platform from the get. So when liberals have to deal with it, right? They have to dig down really deep and then There's bifurcation of message. Then there's like politicking within it. Then there's like groupism. And that is distracting. And it's all because the foundation of a country, like the same motivating factors are there, are just those dirty, murky factors are underneath. And it's not just the left. It's the right as well. We have trouble confronting that and bringing it into the light of day. Like I, the stories of the Women's March and the difficulty in getting the difficulty that black women had in being seen, that trans women had in being seen, that all sorts of women had in being seen. And you're like, well, why the fuck can't we do this? You know, if I put something on Facebook right now and said, you know, million man march against abortion tomorrow, everyone would show up lockstep. You know what I mean? Like it just come out of the woodwork. There'd be a single messaging, but that's why as I think that it's hard for us to crack that ice.
2: Coming back to AOC. I mean, I... I just think that she is being really clever, but also not even really um, savvy. I don't even think, because I, I, I think I'm, I li- i don't like the connotations of savvy. Um, <laughs> well, what are the connotations of savvy? I mean, savvy is, you want, savvy on, on one hand, you would assume would kind of mean strategic, right? But at the same time, you're hearing savvy- yeah, savvy hearing. suggests yeah. a little bit of like um, sliminess. Yeah, and like a that. little bit sliminess, which is I think what people are hoping to suggest when they use that term. I they just want to
1: for the suggest- record, I did not mean to suggest that. No, 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 it's, it's, no, no. It's no, interesting no, no. to me. In the sh- past couple episodes, you brought up two words, Trisha. You don't like that, or two words I really like. One is savvy, the other is hustle. You're like, I'm not a fan of hustle. I think what's funny great. is that I, I hustle all day. When both of you me.
0: say it, I, I hear them differently. Like when Trisha says savvy. She says it in that intonation, savvy, as if it's <laughs> dripping with slime. You know I, mean? like, I can hear it. I'm sorry, sister, what
2: were you saying? Go ahead. Well, no, no, that's because I, I like to think of, actually, to be honest, I like to think of savvy as code switching. You know, it's the recognition that you have to alter your message for the audience that you're talking about. But and is that so, a bad what, thing? No, it's yeah, not a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's a little bit of what people assume politicians do. Because now people are saying she's becoming a politician. And you know that that's not a positive thing, right? Because it really means all sorts of things. It means that she's up for grabs. She's up for sale. Her ideology is um, malleable, which is horrendous. Because this is what happens with growth and time and everything. You're supposed to change. You're supposed to alter yourself. But, um, but nonetheless, what I found really heartening about AOC was um, her reaction to Elizabeth Warren not supporting Bernie right away. And I thought it was such a really good teachable moment about movement building, because she says, if you don't convince people to join your movement, you don't blame the people, you interrogate the movement. And I just think that that is, first of all, that really respects the idea that um, you don't know better than another person. You give that person personhood, which is that you allow that person to say something doesn't work for me here. And you don't sort of drown them out by saying you want to kill babies, which is usually how that 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 goes. It's like you don't want everybody to have health insurance. That's kind of the way that, you know, that uh, that that choice option has been. So I really took heart from her saying that because that told me that she's about building alliances and, 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 be, and sort of being willing to hear why aren't you coming in? What can we say to you? What did we miss? What did we mess up? There was like an assumption that there wasn't perfection in the movement, which I think is so, so smart and so clever. And I appreciated that. And then this this new movement, I think, is interesting because she's also getting rid of different – she's getting rid of staff. She's taking on staff from older other Democrats. Smart. And smart. S- which – which is, I mean, part of it is also recognizing that there is some value in learning how to navigate these systems, Yeah. right? And you yeah. don't want to be stonewalled because you didn't know how to navigate those systems. So it's a question for me, I think she's sharp and she brought in a lot of new ideas and new ways of engaging the media and all of the new technologies for her own benefit. But maybe she's hit a wall and she's recognized, I need someone who can navigate some of these hidden holes here that i can't see and so i'm gonna blend some of my new and some of the old um but it's so sad to me because it's also really cynical the kind of rejection of this growth by her though
0: jason uh let's give you the last word on aoc
1: i'm really eager to see what she does moving forward both in terms of from a policy standpoint, because she's put some really interesting policy ideas on the table. And I think to the point of maybe our first conversation today, some of them may be even more palatable following this crisis that we're in. And I'm also interested to see how she goes about movement building. She attracted an enormous amount of support for her campaign and a couple of others a couple of years ago. And I think she absolutely has the potential to do that again. I think to Tricia's point, she's, you know, building more allies and you know as I've, I've heard other people say like politics is about addition not subtraction and she is adding uh power mm-hmm. and it will be interesting to see how she continues to do that and then what she does with that power
0: yeah let's move on to recommendations which is something that you've seen heard or experienced that you think other people should see hear or experience trisha why don't you go first
2: this week, I watched something on the Oxygen channel. Yeah. Um, I think this is going to be- <laughs> Chris, you keep
1: reacting to Trisha while she's talking. You're listening. I, have I, to I mean, you. Me. know what the
0: thing is? I leaned back from the microphone, so I didn't think it was enough, but I heard it, and then, I'm sorry. Well, but the so your sorry. Place,
1: which I realized the listeners couldn't see, but we could. Can you just listen? Can you open your heart and your mind That's to Trisha okay. when she's talking? i going to
0: lay down while you talk. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um I watched a documentary about the Memphis 3. Now, this is it's called The Forgotten Memphis 3. What I really appreciated about the documentary is that when you hear about the Memphis 3, you often hear about the three boys who were convicted of the murder of three 8-year-old boys and they were teenagers, really what the whole point of it is that everyone sort of settled on them as being guilty. In the end, it turned out that they were actually not guilty and they were released after spending 20 year, 20 plus years in jail. But what was really interesting about this documentary was it was about the three boys who were murdered because having had the case turn over with the Alfred plea. So essentially what the three people did was they pled. They said they um, they agreed to get out of jail, but they did not acknowledge that they did the crime. And so by doing that, it allowed them to go free, but it also allowed the prosecutors to still have a check mark as if they solved the crime, but they didn't actually solve the crime. So what you have is a murderer still going free. So this documentary was purported to try to solve the crime and figure out who killed these three boys. It's actually super fascinating because it's all about sort of Um, kind of the changes in DNA, what what you can collect in DNA in 20 plus years. But I'm anti-recommending it because they promised to solve the crime. And they stopped just short of solving the crime because the prosecutor refused to accept new evidence in the case. And so what they want you to do is to watch the show and then compel the prosecutor through public anger and um a campaign i think to open up the case and and collect new dna evidence so that they can actually solve that crime but so that's you know so it's so i'm annoyed that they didn't solve the crime but i thought it was really fascinating that you know what Thank you for focusing on the murdered victims. You know, thank you for really trying to solve that crime. And the person who um, put together the documentary is a man who had actually worked to free an African-American man who had been accused of a crime. And um, he got him out of jail after 17 plus years or so. So he has a, um, a history of doing this work. It's called The Lost Memphis Three. The, occ- channel for, the
0: Channel for Women.
2: Well, I think it's changed now, right? But that's what it originally was, the Channel for Women. Remember when Oprah had parts of it, I think it was? I'm sure she she still does. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Anti-recommendation.
1: Jason. I have watched the first several episodes of season one of Kingdom on Netflix, which is actually a South Korean uh, series. I am going to admit to you two and the listeners that when I first saw, I don't, I don't watch a lot of, you know, Netflix series and that kind of thing. But when I saw the coming attractions, I'm just going to be honest and say, I assumed it was going to have a lot of martial arts because it is all (laughs) again, Chris's face. It was, it was all East Asian actors and it was taking place <laughs> chris i can't even talk
0: i it just was... you're so racist right now
1: uh, it's on uh, it's
0: unbelievable
1: let, let me finish so let, let me get me this finish. straight
0: you saw something with east asians and you're like where's the kung fu oh my I god i didn't
1: no i didn't finish I didn't, it's not just and it takes place like in, you know, clearly hundreds of years ago. And it looked a lot to me like, you know, Jet Li, Wong Fei Hong movies. And so I was like, oh, this looks interesting like a Netflix series from East Asia. And, it, you know, colonial times or pre-colonial times, it looks like it's going to be, you know, martial arts. So that's why I started watching it. What's interesting is it's actually a zombie series, which I do not like zombie movies. I don't typically watch, you know, I I have not watched The Walking Dead. I don't like most zombie things. But it is fascinating. It's very well done. Um, And when I say zombies it's probably not quite doing it justice. I mean, I think it does even build itself as it has this zombie component, but the palace intrigue and the politics, it is very good so far. The point, Chris, you've made many times. I can't recommend the whole series because I haven't seen it all yet. The first first five (laughs) episodes of Kingdom, excellent.
0: Okay. I am going to recommend an app for your phone. It's an app called House Party. It is number one in the App Store in the UK, and it is gathering steam here in the US. If you are trapped in your home, it's a great way to just talk to your friends with no muss, no fuss of like bullshit Skype or any other video things. It's really lightweight. You just push a friend's name. Next thing you know, you're video chatting with them. It's, it's so super simple. It's allowed us to keep in contact just to say, hey, during the day to break up long days of sitting in our houses looking out the windows and sighing. So everyone download the house party app and join the party.
1: And that but before you close it, I just need to tell the listeners that Trisha was giving Chris the finger while he was recommending house party. Why? I, don't, I don't why is that Trisha?
0: Trisha you I recommend was... a House Party to me. This should be your recommendation. What is going on? Now I mean and it's it... a house party?
2: I'm not anti-house party, but I feel like it's so easy of you. It's so easy. That's an easy get. What this is what How I've been there? doing
0: this week. This is something I've experienced. I think other people should experience. <laughs> <laughs> Literally in the title of the segment.
1: I just I just need to say to both of you you've been driving me crazy this episode the middle school teacher slash principal is coming out of me it's like you don't shake your head when someone is talking oh you don't God. make gestures you listen you stay open to what they have to say you think about <laughs> what they said and then you respond are you new on
0: this show like it's and true. this is season four jason this is season four i've known you since we were 19 years old you're just now getting on come on jason
1: I am joining by audio next time because I can't stay oh, oh, we, while we, we talk.
0: We this is like, <laughs> like when the Spice Girls broke up. All right, everyone. Uh, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> bye, everybody.
1: Bye.
2: Bye.